This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here is my oh-so-newsworthy co-host, Jon. How you doing, Jon? Why am I newsworthy? What, what do you know? Have you been reading my email again? Uh, actually, it's probably <laughs> fake news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, let's not go into that. Let's go into more, more interesting stuff. Well, I mean, it's def- it definitely is interesting, but is it the year of it for the enterprise? And the it that we're talking about in this particular um, phrase is graph data and and therefore by extension graph databases, I would guess. Well, the article specifically says graph data science. Mm-hmm. So this is an okay. I'm going I'm going to be honest in this. I don't like the content of the article too much, so I'm going to be a bit negative here. And yes, that's what I'm usually doing, I, I guess. But this, this is kind of an unholy marriage of marketing from graph databases and data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence and all of the good hype stuff that's going around these days. Now, the person who wrote this article, Alicia Frame, apparently at the bottom of the article, it says that the writer, which I'm assuming is this person, is a uh, lead project manager, data science at Neo4j. There it is. So there is definitely some bias in this article, let's no. say. Now, am I totally against it? Uh, not entirely, because it does raise a good question. Graph databases do have their good things. I mean, it's a good technology. And so uh, so the, I think where, where I struggle with this article is... When you talk about something being the year of the whatever it is, I mean the the eternal the eternal one that always makes me chuckle is the year of the Linux desktop, for example. This year, this year, now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, but um, the so you've got this big flashy sort of title, uh, you know, twenty why twenty twenty one is graph data science's year for the enterprise, but then the the actual piece that this the piece of real data that this seems to be sort of centered around is actually uh based on some gartner information which is uh, 92% of companies that were interviewed about using ai and machine learning techniques uh said that they plan to employ graph techniques within 5 years now First of all, five years is not one year. I just, you know, I've done the math. I've looked this up. I've kind of consulted, you know, a number of peers. We all agree five years is not one year. Uh, Did you use a machine Um, learning algorithm based on graph? uh, No, no, unfortunately Ah. there weren't any. Uh, It's just the way it is right now because it's not not the year, it's the five years. Um, But the other, the other piece is they planned to Im- they plan to employ graph techniques within five years now to me that doesn't mean anything like that could be one person like one developer in one like cubicle or home office somewhere uses a graph database in some piece of technology somewhere in an organization mm-hmm. bing check that box it's 
I think when we when you and I were talking about this ahead of it, you made a, an excellent point that like, there's nothing wrong with graph data and graph mm -hmm. databases at all. They're incredibly useful for a lot of different use cases, but they're relatively specific. I mean, what I don't know what what's what's the wording that you would use? Um, niche, niche, I suppose, is one. Yeah. yeah. Because graphs, I mean, a graph database, the, the main thing that a graph database brings you is traversal queries. Because basically it's a storage layer. And whether it's SQL, a NoSQL, or a graph database layer, there's ways of getting the data out of there. The differentiation here is how easy it is to get data connections in certain ways. In SQL, you would use joins. Joins are very expensive. You need very expensive SQL machines or very slow queries if you do a lot of joins in there. And even with that, if you want to get a shortest path between two points in a connected graph, that's going to take a lot of compute power. Graph traversal is what graph databases bring to the world and is brilliant mm -hmm. for the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, for um, genome sequencing, stuff like that. Neural networks, for instance. When you talk neural network, mm -hmm. there's a bit of a graph thing beneath there. Now, I don't know enough about the internal algorithms these days, how these work, but I would not be surprised that there is at least some graph traversal theory in there so hey hang on 2021 is the year of graph data science neural networks are older than 2021 like whatever <laughs> and again but this is a very niche thing it's you need to have that kind of use case where you have this connected dots vertices and, and nodes and have a need to query shortest paths and things like that and being able to have weights on the connection, things like that. So, and that's been working brilliantly for years. I mean, Facebook isn't new, LinkedIn isn't new. The whole idea of social connectivity isn't new in IT, and it's been there forever. The thing I have with this article is, apparently now the data scientists are going to be using that, and there's a problem with that. Tell me, tell me I, this problem. See, that's me hinting that he needs to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've seen any kind of machine learning happening, and I'm not talking about neural networks at this part, because as a colleague of mine used, uh, is happy to say, whenever a data scientist goes to neural networks, he kind of gave up. He or she kind of gave up. There's always a better way to do it in traditional machine learning, unless you can't figure it out, and then you can just punk it all on the computer and have a neural net figure it out for you. But in traditional machine learning, with the classification, the linear regressions, things like that, all of those models require a table of data with your feature columns and your uh, inference variable. And that's columnar. Mm. That's, that's, I mean, that's built for SQL, for CSV files even. Graph traversal directly to a machine learning algorithm, I have not seen the single one. Now, I can understand that you have your data stored in a graph database and have a nice graph traversal query to extract a columnar data set out of there to give to your machine learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. Maybe great. I mean, let me say it differently. That's being done today. If you go to Netflix, if you go to um, Spotify, when they recommend you something, the original data point, I don't know, I don't work for them, but I would not be surprised at all, comes from a graph database. But before it gets added to a machine learning thing, it needs to be quantified in a nice box or cube, if you like. Yeah. This article makes me believe, or if I didn't know enough about this, would make me believe that we can now directly go from graph to machine learning. I have seen no evidence of that, not in this article and not in anything else either. But if any of our listeners have further knowledge on this, please let me know. I'm very interested because it would be interesting, but there would still be a niche case because the amount of data sets that actually 
benefits from a graph representation. It's a single use case. So I I don't I don't know enough about the depth of the of graph databases as you do. I've I've been exposed to them at the surface level. I've seen a handful of use cases that I've been very impressed with over the years, like mainly around uh, fraud detection and fraud analytics, yeah. um, which is all about relationships and, and that sort of thing, which makes perfect sense. Um, I, I wonder, I wonder if, you, if, I mean, obviously we've no idea what the, the rest of the questions asked were, but I wonder what percentage of, if 92% said they plan to employ graph techniques within five years, I wonder how many of them were already using graph techniques because I bet it's not just it's not going to be just eight percent of of, of organisations like were were using graph techniques somewhere already. So I don't know. I I just I think there's a very it's a very sort of it's an it's an article trying to push a particular point of view with very little supporting information in my in my my view. It's something you've mentioned before. It's AI washing a technology. And in this case, mm -hmm. D4J, which is a great graph database. I have no problem with that. There's some hoopers in the world where they are trying to push everybody to their way of thinking. I mean, I like Gremlin more than their language. Doesn't matter. They have religious wars everywhere. D4J isn't a bad yeah. thing. It's just that they're getting less... I'm not going to say important because the storage layer is important, but they're getting less limelight. Because more and more today, how you store your data is less important than how you make that data available. So the storage layer is underneath, and Hadoop is one of those that kind of fell mm -hmm. along the along the, the the way. You use Hadoop, you use EMC, you use NoSQL, SQL, whatever. As long as it's stored, that's that's we've done that. You can do that now. There's no sexiness in there anymore. The oldest, older, older industry news interviews, whatever, they all go to the top layer. How you use the data, how you make them visible, usable, get that knowledge out of there, the whole uh, thing. And E4J, I think, is kind of fearing that they're not going to be seen as a, a real player, but just a kind of a sub part of it. And by AI washing, or in this case, data science washing it, they make themselves more, I don't know relevant it's a bit of yeah. a, a rant i got on the whole thing actually because we've been we hadn't done a news episode in a while and I, again when i when i went out looking for inspiration i was hit by the enormous amount of biased information out there how hard it is to find uh yeah just factual information any kind of article the first thing these days i do is see who wrote this where does this person mm. work? What's his affiliation? Let's go to his Twitter feed, see what kind of bias. We all have a bias. And that's good. Yeah. I mean, that means you're, you you know something, you have formed an opinion. But it's going so much overboard lately. It's hard to find good information. Mm. Well, Slash speaking <laughs> of uh, being difficult to find good information, how about if you do everything right, you follow all of the best practice guidelines, and you still have a massive outage due to the glories of uh, of cloud auto scaling. Uh, this is this next article is around um, the sort of uh, autopsy of the January outage that Slack had 
Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, first of all, you know, for those that don't know, Slack had a, an outage in in early January, um, down for about five hours, or certainly severely degraded service oh. for about five hours. They called it an outage. I actually called it some extra free time for myself. <laughs> <laughs> quiet, quiet thinking time. You might you may call it, um, but it was. You know, the, their infrastructure has been built on Slack for, uh, sorry, on AWS for a very long time. Um, you know, they they were one of the early sort of case studies for all all infrastructure being on AWS. I think that, in fact, even the article mentions like the case study is a little bit out of date now. They've moved on from whatever architecture they had back in the day, but the there's there's some really interesting stuff here the they talk about the you know what went wrong and how it went wrong and how they were trying to remediate the situation and and you you can you can see it sort of um it, almost like the the automated systems were fighting them in that they were logging in to try and manually fix systems to get things back up and running and the auto scaling system was actually killing off systems <laughs> that engineers were remoted into and the ssa sessions were dying off and uh it it just i i mean i can only imagine it must have been a pretty awful situation for the 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 operations folks that were in that particular hot seat but it 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 really to, to me highlighted the fact that this is an organization that you know in every position i think at least from what i was seeing every uh decision that they made was following uh the cloud provider in this case AWS's best practices you know they they split their services up a certain way they you know split accounts up a certain way they did this that and the other thing a certain way all following the best practices but it still sort of it took one particular um surge of um you know requests coming in to tip this whole system on its head and and start this like cascading series of weird and wacky sort of considerations that were that i think you know no one really could have predicted but the the sort of the piece of the puzzle that was not under the um slack's control was the piece that failed them there was a certain part of the infrastructure uh the aws transit gateway the tgw um did not scale fast enough and you know, apparently this is some part of the infrastructure that needs to be scaled by Amazon. It's not something you can just set a policy on and it it scales itself. But it it just it reads like some sort of um, like some sort of scene out of a hacking film <laughs> where you see people and they're 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 logging in and they've got flashy graphics on the screen that don't in any way represent the real world and. You know, they're like, oh, I've just been just been kicked out of that. Let me go somewhere else. And, and don't, I, I don't I don't often think that the the life of uh, a DevOps engineer or an SRE would make a particularly good 
blockbuster motion picture film. But this oh, might have this been... This is a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this may have made for a particularly uh, uh, tense moment. What's, you know, what, what did you take from this? Um, immaturity. And that's mm. immaturity of the cloud environments. I mean, we're putting so much stuff in the clouds and most of the time it works quite well. Mm. The thing is, it's not finished. I mean, the whole evolution of new services, changes, uh, the whole uh, continuous development, uh, integration, it's going so fast, nobody has an overview anymore. And there's so many interconnecting things, which is a good thing because that makes it all uh, modular and containerized and scalable. But <laughs> at a certain point, you, have, you kind of start giving control away to the system again, which is a good thing as long as you understand the system. And today, I don't think there's a single person that understands the entire system of anything anymore. <laughs> Yeah, but that's 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 where we are, right? That that's the the complexity of these massive microservices distributed environments. Like there's there's no way that you could like draw all of this on a, a large piece of paper for example and go, "Oh yeah, here we go. This is this is this is my entire um sort of it's Mr. Clerk's next challenge. Yeah, it, it's it's all in all in perfect uh, perfect detail. Like it's just not it's just not feasible. And the the thing that gets me is this sort of the the sort of butterfly effect of like something happens up here somewhere that causes a ripple effect like all the way over there somewhere <laughs> but this is also and, creating a whole new business right the whole observability thing is basically yeah. to answer this yeah but if you look at if you look at how they handled it um like it took a decent amount of time for them to work out exactly you know it, this wasn't necessarily it took them a lot of time to fix it it was all about the time trying to understand what the hell was even going on in the first place. Uh, you can, you see the symptoms of a problem, you know, long before you understand the root cause. Like that, that's the whole, yep. you know, sort of MTTR um, sort of numbers that people are always chasing, and this uh, th this sort of you know time to time to understanding versus you know time to fix. MTTU. Yeah. That's <laughs> undervalued metric, I must say. Um, yeah, but again, it's also hard, right? Because in these kind of things, when you go out on the cloud, you have visibility on your part of the development, and then you kind of have to trust that cloud provider. And I'm not saying they're not trustworthy. I'm pretty sure they try to keep it up as much as possible because oh, they yeah. will lose customers if they don't. But there is an, a, a connection they're breaking. It's, there's, there's no connection. And over the last, I'm going to say, year, I have seen improvements there where the cloud providers, mm. because demand have started to open up more of their internal logging, API connectivity, mm. monitoring capabilities. So it is going the right way, but it's that little friction point where by exposing the monitoring and logging information, you kind of give away how you're doing things, which kind of makes other people be able to do what you're doing. And uh, that whole secrecy thing around it is still blocking it a bit, I think. Yeah, but then you know some of some of this I think is uh, 
is the continual war that organizations have always had with technologies like open source. Well, you know, if, if you're using an open source technology and I'm using an open source technology, you know, I, I don't want to contribute back to it because then you'll get the things that I've, you know, improve it for me. You know, that, that's the, that's the, the war that, uh, um, certain organizations have been, you know, dealing with for a very long time, but the, the, the thing you mentioned about like the automated systems getting better, I, I do agree with that, but then you still see the problem is that they don't have enough inputs, maybe complexity, maybe, but so like one of the, one of the situations that occurred was a certain part of their infrastructure was saturated and that led to another tier of their infrastructure being um, starved of data. So it looked like they were idle. So they, despite the fact that load was increasing and increasing and increasing, one tier of their application infrastructure got, got scaled down because it yep. was, it was looking idle. And the, this is where, what I mean by enough inputs, like the, it's easy to think about things in discrete mm -hmm. chunks, discrete sort of sets. And that, let's face it, that's really what microservice architecture is, is all about at its, at its fundamental pieces. You know, I understand this piece. I understand the, the APIs that will be used to communicate, you know, to and from me. I understand the, the data that I will pass back and forward. And as long as I do that and I, I sort of follow the, the, the contracts that I'm, I'm supposed to follow, then all's good in the world. But it, when you start looking at auto scaling at this level of complexity, yeah. it's not quite that simple. You need different sort of layers of abstraction in auto scaling to almost put checks and balances in these things to make sure that when just because one thing looks like it's happening in this tiny piece down here of your architecture or infrastructure, you know, that is part of a, a wider system and the wider system says, oh no, 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 I know that you're seeing that, but that's not, that's just your limited field of view. Please don't go and yeah. go and scale yourself down because we're going to be in a bad old way if you do that. Yeah. And that's, I've, I think I've said this before, I'm not a fan of auto scaling at all. Hmm. The first thing is auto scaling should always be separated into two parts, scaling up and scaling down, which are dramatically different things because scaling up can never go wrong, except on your bank account. <laughs> it can be expensive, but it won't. Mm. having more of something has a very small chance of breaking something. It's still there. There's mm. still a chance, but the chance is small because having more resources available, well, they may not end up being used, but nobody will get starved. So you can pretty much scale up in your isolation. I I don't I don't no I don't think that's quite. I mean I think you can scale up within reason very comfortably, and yes, it'll just hurt your bank account. But I do think like, you could have you know if you had runaway scale up, like you you would end up oh. with you know connections being um used up connection limits end, being hit you will hit limits you'd end up yep. with all kinds of bad even if the systems weren't actually doing anything like still bad things could happen 
yeah. if you most auto scale up by if you auto scale up by like 10%, 15%, 20%, I surely that yeah. that's probably fine, but try auto scaling systems up by thousands of percent, you're you still can't. probably going to have a bad day. But that doesn't happen because either on premise you don't have the hardware, simple, <laughs> and on the clouds you have quotas. And typical, the cloud quotas are set quite conservatively, and you have to ask to be increased in little increments to avoid this kind of runaway thing. And the first thing that's going to hurt is your bank account, so you're pretty much going to keep that in check. Putting a maximum on something is easy enough to do. But scaling down mm. is always a problem, because yeah. you can scale up based on demand on the single service. If this service gets enough for demand, okay, we scale it up. Simple, up until a certain maximum at which point we accept that we have the graded performance. When you scale down, you have no vision on where that reaches because now you're affecting the rest of the environment. And that's a much more complicated thing, especially in a fragmented, containerized, multi-services thing, which again is a good thing, as long as you have mm -hmm. that. I'm going to use the observability keyword again, why not? Mm -hmm. The observation of the whole chain of command. And that data is there. So it's not, I think, a lack of information, but it's a lack of intelligence on part on the infrastructure to understand how all of these things work together because if you would yeah. have that deployed that's a whole application in its own and a very complicated one because that's basically ai yeah so uh, just just to uh, echo my my point about uh, there are still there are still issues with uh, with scaling up like this whole thing that kicked off this challenge was slackware adding 1200 service to their web tier like that that was the initial it was a scale up event that caused this resonance True. cascade <laughs> but if they didn't have this uh, the, the 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 scale down it wouldn't have caused the audits <laughs> uh i no i don't know that that's true but yeah it probably wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as bad for sure absolutely for sure because they would have been able to log in and and fix things but the they it, because the uh, oh god I can't remember the name the, the the transit gateways didn't scale up that was the the other thing that would that slowed it down Golden and caused all these issues. so again it was it was a scale up issue not a scale down no. but you're right <laughs> it was a scale down issue that then made things ten times worse for them to try and it was a cloud it. issue we didn't have, if it didn't have cloud we didn't have had the upscale the scale up so we shouldn't have had this so it's a computer yeah problem. I mean you the the nice thing about six month long like from purchase to it arriving in your data center exactly. timelines is you can't have these problems <laughs> oh. anyway just to finish off the one thing to put this in perspective this great yeah. failure this huge outage was solved in five hours yeah so again this is i'm all gonna say nitpicking because on a whole year what's five hours Better if it doesn't happen, of course, but still they were able to put it up again very quickly. And yeah. kudos to Slack for putting stuff online, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I think we've we've talked about this a couple of times before that there are there are a couple of organizations out there, not as many as I would like, but there are definitely a couple that do a really good job in their um in their reports of um in their outage reports and yeah, details around what what goes what goes wrong when and how they fixed it and how they worked around it and that sort of thing. Yeah. We've we've talked about um oh one of the challenger banks has does a really good job of that as well. But there, there's a couple of organizations out there that are really incredibly transparent about it. 
and I know that they use it as a a recruiting tool just as mm-hmm. much as anything else to show you know look at the 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 skill and the level of expertise we've got even when even when things are on fire you know we've got really smart people here trying to figure these things out okay, that's so, how you need them <laughs> yeah exactly exactly I think this but, openness is a big part of what open source should be much more yeah. than free no no money but this kind of openness that's what it should be about yep ah, well. indeed but yeah it's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting article and in fact the 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 report that's linked from the registry article itself is pretty good as well but some good yep. little diagrams there all of information about there as well yeah. indeed well, I think with that, unless you've got uh, anything else in particular. Even if I had, this is all the time we have for today. You can support the podcast. You can become a patron. Every contribution helps. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bell, do all the YouTube stuff that they like so much. You can also still go to our static webpage, www.roaringoff.org. There's links there to the Patreon page, to the YouTube, and a lot of more information around the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag, and you can send your feedback by good old email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. If you have any ideas of topics for the show, let us know, and we'll see what we can do with it. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Scaling Down Dave. <laughs> I will look forward to the cascade fader that is called Dave and talk to you again <laughs> next week. Goodbye. It's it's resonance cascade, I tell you, Freeman. <laughs> Dang, what movie was that again? That's not a movie, it's Half-Life. Yes, it oh, I never played that. Oh. Some days I just, I wonder why. Hey, you give me a headset, a VR headset, and I'll get that Alex thing to play uh, Half-Life. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.